You've heard the gospel presented this morning by song, very clearly. He lived a sinless life, he died a sacrificial death, he was buried in a borrowed tomb and he rose again victorious on the third day over death, hell and the grave. What's left for us to do is entrust our life to him, entrust our soul to him. And um, that's the least that we can do after all that he's done for us. I was thinking about the night that I um, surrendered to the call to preach. Isaiah chapter 6 was preached where where he saw the Lord high and lifted up and his glory filled the temple. And Isaiah, who was a prophet of God, said, Woe is me. When he saw the glory and the holiness of God, he said, Woe is me. And he declared himself to be an unclean man who dwelt among unclean men. And then that angel went and grabbed that, that um, hot coal off of the altar. And every altar in the Old Testament is a picture of Jesus and what he did for us. Every altar in the Old Testament symbolizes Christ. And so that hot atoned from off the altar, touched his lips, and he was declared to be clean. And I remember hearing that that night and understanding what, what Christ had done in my life was something that nobody else could do. He's the only one that can bring clean out of that which is so unclean. He's the only one that can take away the guilt and the shame of our sin. He's the only one that can pay the penalty and break the power and deliver us once and for all from the presence of sin, which he will do. And then, and then that question was asked right after that, who shall I send and who will go for us? That's God speaking from the throne. And Isaiah said, here am I, send me. And I remember that night thinking, how could we say anything else after all that he's done for us? How could we not answer here I am send me now God may not call you to preach but if you're a Christian he's called you to be his ambassador he has sent you um, to a lost and dying world to declare Christ as the only hope of salvation so um, I hope that if you're not doing that that you'll step up and understand you know when I start when I every time I think about what he went through for me I'm moved by it I've never gotten over what Christ has done for me and what he's promised me, and I hope that you hadn't either. And I I say this, if you've gotten over it, maybe you didn't get it. If you've gotten over it, maybe you didn't get it to begin with. And so be, be, be careful and check yourself, examine yourself to see whether or not you're truly in the faith. Revelation chapter 19, we're going to cover the last part of this chapter today. <clears throat> Revelation is the unveiling of the Lord Jesus Christ. I know we think about it in a lot of different ways. We think about it as being the end of time. We think about it as being the great tribulation. All those things are talked about in the book of Revelation. But the book of Revelation is about Jesus. It's about Jesus. It is um, from beginning to end the complete unveiling, uncovering of who the Lord Jesus is. It said that from the first words, the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, The word apocalypse doesn't mean um, um, catastrophe or or the end of time, the word apocalypse means to unveil something, to uncover something, to make something known. <clears throat> so this is the making known of Jesus. Um, not just as he was, but as he is and as he will be. Uh, first three chapters deal with Christ in the church age. What's Jesus doing now? He's in the midst of his church, uh, guarding it and guiding it and, and rebuking it and correcting it when necessary. Uh, he stands in the midst of his church and is moving us towards glory. <clears throat> in, in chapter 4, verse 18, is Christ in the tribulation. Um, and I, we breezed, we went through the tribulation very quickly on one Sunday morning. 
Um, but one thing you'll notice in that is that the, the world realized that they are being exposed to the wrath of the Lamb. Um, that's not a Jesus that we're familiar with seeing. It's not a Jesus that many are comfortable with seeing. But it's clear from Revelation chapter 4 through chapter 18 that this wrath that is being poured out upon the earth is coming from the Lord Jesus Christ. Who will hide us? Who will deliver us from the wrath of the Lamb? And the answer to that is nobody can. Nobody can. And, and then the last three chapters, um, 19, 20, and 21, or 22, last four chapters, um, talk about Christ and his eternal kingdom. When you get to Revelation chapter 19, it literally is the climax of the book of Revelation. Uh, it, it brings it all to a pinnacle. It brings it all to, that, uh, to the end, to the climax. It is also the climax of the Bible. Um, it, it's, the, it's the end of God's revelation to man, the end of the church age. Uh, it is the ushering in of the eternal kingdom. Uh, so it, it's, the, it's the climax of, of revelation. It's the climax of the whole word of God. And it's the climax of world history as we know it. Now last week we covered the first ten verses. The hallelujah course of heaven is in the first six verses. And it is the saints of heaven praising God for judging the world and for avenging his saints. It, it, now they praise him for his attributes, but they also praise him for doing what he promised he would do, uh, for judging the world in righteousness and for avenging his saints of all that they've ever been um, afflicted by. Verses 7 through 10 is the marriage supper. We are betrothed to Christ right now. We are in a legal engagement to Christ, but one day that marriage will be consummated, and I believe that happens before the tribulation or, or while the tribulation is going on. I believe we're raptured before that, taken to heaven. We spend seven years with Christ as his church, and at the end of that, there is a marriage supper, a reception, a celebration in heaven signifying the consummation of the marriage of Christ to his church um, and that glorious future that he has prepared for us. Um, the, the next verses from 11 through 21 talk about the second coming of Christ. Now, give me just a minute to set this up, and then I'm going to move through the, chapter, um, through the rest of this chapter pretty quickly. Because I want you to understand what's happening here. This is the second coming from verse 11, chapter 19, verse 11 to verse 21. That is the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> In the Old Testament, this is most often known as the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. Um, the Apostle Paul um, called it another title, and that's what we're going to title the message today, but I'm going to get to that in a minute. I just did a little, I don't know if you, by the way, I love a written book in my hand. I think, I think the world needs to see us carrying around a Bible, honestly. Um, they don't know that you're reading the Bible when you're on your phone app. Um, I read from mine all the time, so I'm not, I'm not telling you not to use these things, but I like a written Bible. I like a book in my hand, especially when, when I want people to know what I'm reading in public. I want a book in my hand. But when you... When, when, you, when you use technology, you can do some interesting things very quickly. So I just typed in. There's a lot of different references to this in the Old Testament, but I just typed in the one that I believe is probably the most common, the day of the Lord. And Blue Letter Bible will pull up every verse where those, three, where those words are used. And you can, make it, you can apply it and make it a specific. Just find those words. Don't find them separated. Find them together. Find them in a phrase. And so I want to read to you very quickly what the Bible has to say about the day of the Lord in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 2 verse 12 says, For the day of the Lord of hosts shall be upon every one that is proud and lofty, and upon every one that is upon every one that is lifted up, and he shall be brought low. 
Isaiah 13, 6. How ye, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as a destruction from the Almighty. Isaiah 13, 9. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, cruel both with wrath and fierce anger, anger to lay the land desolate, and he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. Jeremiah 46, 10. For this is the day of the Lord God of hosts, a day of vengeance, that he may avenge him of his adversaries. And the sword shall devour, and it shall be satiate and made drunk with their blood. For the Lord God of hosts hath a sacrifice in the north country by the river Euphrates. Ezekiel thirteen five. We have not gone up, and you have not gone up into the gaps, neither made up the hedge for the house of Israel to stand in the battle in the day of the Lord. Ezekiel thirty three. For the day is near, even the day of the Lord is near, a cloudy day. It shall be the time of the heathen. Joel had some powerful things to say about it. In Joel chapter 1 verse 15 he said, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand, and a destruction from the Almighty shall it come. As a destruction from the Almighty shall it come. Joel 2.1 Blow ye the trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord cometh, for it is nigh at hand. Joel 2.11, and the Lord shall utter his voice before his army, for his camp is very great, for he is strong that executeth his word, for the day of the Lord is great and very terrible, and who can abide it? Joel 3.14, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Amos chapter 5, verse 18. Woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. To what end is it for you? The day of the Lord is darkness and not light. Amos 5, 20. Shall not the day of the Lord be darkness and not light? Even very dark and no brightness in it. Obadiah 1, 15. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen. As thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. Thy reward shall return upon thine own head. Zephaniah 1.7, Hold thy peace at the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is at hand, for the Lord hath prepared a sacrifice, he hath bid his guest. Zephaniah 1.14, The great day of the Lord is near, it is near and hasteth greatly, even the voice of the day of the Lord, the mighty man shall cry there bitterly. In Zechariah 14.1, Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. Those are just a few of the Old Testament prophecies that relate to the day of the Lord that we're going to read about in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11 through 21. When Paul was looking forward to this event, um, he broke it down into two. He's the one that wrote most about the rapture of the church. In Titus chapter 2, verse 13, he's talking about the grace of God and how it brings salvation and teaches us how to live our life. But it also said the grace of God causes us to look for that blessed hope. And I believe that's the rapture and then the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. I believe that is the second coming of Christ. So the second coming of Jesus is the most prophesied. I'm going to come back to this at the end and, and give you a little bit more detail. But the second coming of Christ is the most prophesied, most often proclaimed, and most often promised in all of God's Word. You read more about the second coming of Christ in God's Word than you do any other and every other 
event. And now I believe one reason the Jews, I, when I read Isaiah chapter 53, sometimes I ask myself, how did the Jews miss Jesus with Isaiah 53 laying out before them? And I really believe the Jews missed Jesus at his first coming because they were so fixated on the promises that were related to his second coming that they missed it. They jumped over that and went right to the second coming and to the promise associated with the second coming. And they, many of them missed him as the babe who grew up, um, as the humble servant. They, what the Jews were looking for um, was, was a warrior king. They were looking for a king that would come and set everything straight and reestablish them in, in power and in glory in their own kingdom. That's what they were looking for. And that's who he will be the second time. But they missed his first coming. I want to show you one verse the scripture in the Old Testament, I reference it often. Um, Isaiah chapter 61, um, verses 1 through 3. I've got Zena I got to put it all on one screen because I want you to see the breakdown in this. The first time Jesus stood up in the temple, the first time we read about that Jesus stood up in, not the temple, but in the synagogue to read on the Sabbath day, he read from this text, Isaiah chapter 61. And verse 1 says this, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And Jesus stopped right there. He closed the book, the Bible said. And he said to the people that were listening, This day is this passage fulfilled in your ears. And they got furious at him. Who is he claiming to be? What is he claiming to do? They got very angry with Jesus. But Jesus stopped quoting right there in Isaiah and said, This day, this passage of Scripture is fulfilled right here, right now. And then verse 2 says, And the day of vengeance of our God. That's the second coming. And then you get to verse 3. Actually, it's at the end of verse 2. To proclaim the acceptable year of our Lord, that's the end of his first coming. And the day of vengeance of our God, that's the end of his second coming. And then you get to verse 3, and it says, To comfort all that mourn, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for spirit of heaviness. They might be called the trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. That's the millennial kingdom. So what did the Jews do? They didn't, they didn't look, they, they jumped right over verse 1 and went right to verse 3. They, they wanted him to execute vengeance upon their adversaries and they wanted him to reestablish the kingdom that he had promised them. So I believe that's in large part why the Jewish people missed him, why they overlooked his first coming. So in Revelation chapter 19, Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, the Bible said that the heavens, a door in heaven was open and John was taken up. Revelation chapter 19 begins again with heaven opening, but this time nobody's going up. This time everybody's coming down. This time Jesus is coming down. And this is what I believe um, the Apostle Paul referred, referred to as um, the glorious appearing and what the prophets of the Old Testament often called the day of the Lord. Look with me at verse 11. I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. 
And he was clothed with a vesture, with a cloak or a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heavens, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of them that sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceedeth out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. So this is the glorious appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the Lord Jesus Christ come to earth like he has never been to earth before. I want you to notice some things right from the text, and I'm not going to go back and, and, and point every verse of Scripture out, but John painted us a word picture for Christ. He painted us a portrait of Christ in word, and, and what John said is both awe-inspiring and utterly terrifying at the same time. He saw a rider mounted on a white horse. White horses are symbolic of, uh, they're, they're the horses that kings ride. They're also symbolic of a victorious king riding into battle. In Revelation chapter 6 verse 1 we saw another horse that opened up that began. It was the first seal that was broken um, that began the tribulation and that white horse was the Antichrist. That white horse was the one who would come to rule the world. But now there's another white horse that comes from heaven um, signifying the conquest, the overcoming um, of all that the Antichrist had done in the earth. The Bible says that his eyes were as a flame of fire. We saw a description of him earlier, I believe it was in the first chapter, um, that his eyes looked like a flame of fire. This is righteous indignation. This is Jesus angry at the sinful rebellion and ready to administer justice. Uh, do you know the Bible teaches that God is angry with the wicked every day? The Bible teaches that. Um, and, and, and we don't hear that preached very often, but I'm, I want you to understand that every man that is, um, that, is, that is in love with wickedness is in opposition to God. You, if you love the things of this world, if you have fallen in love with the wickedness and the sins of this world, the Bible says that you're standing at enmity, that you are an, in, that you are an enemy of God. You can't be friends with worldly things and worldly ideas and be a friend with God. So his eyes are burning with indignation. He is angry um, with the wicked, and he has been. Um, from, from, that doesn't mean he doesn't, is not merciful and gracious to those that humble themselves and come to him, but he's angry at sin. He's angry at the wickedness of the world. Why? Because it's destructive by nature, um, because it brings death by its very nature. God hates wickedness because of what wickedness does to men. The Bible says also that he is crowned with many crowns, um, representing his sovereign authority and the right to rule all nations and all of creation. He doesn't just bear one crown, he bears 
all the crowns. Um, I think when I read some uh, the Bible that it says that as believers that we can win crowns, that we can have a crown of righteousness, that we can have a soul winner's crown, um, th- th- that we have a crown of life. We can win all these crowns by our faithfulness. And I want you to understand Christ wears all those crowns already. He is crowned with many crowns. His robe is dipped in blood. I don't know what that's about. I don't know what that's symbolic of. I remember that day at the cross that there were some soldiers that gambled for his garments that um that 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 played a game um with his blood-stained garments after he had been beaten and, and his back wrecked by that cat of nine tails um that garment was then was then um played a game over at the foot of his cross maybe that vesture dipped in blood just represents the bloodstains of battle the bible says that he had a sharp sword that came from his mouth that is judgment through his spoken word That's judgment through his spoken word. Can I tell you, Jesus can send his word and heal you? He can send his word and heal you. He doesn't need to come to you. He can send his word and heal you. He can also send his word and destroy you. I remember Herod stood up on the pinnacle of a temple one day and literally declared declared himself to be God, literally um, claimed that title that he was worthy to be worshipped. And the Bible says that God smote him there that day and he fell down before the people and he was eaten from the inside out. The word of God can bring life or the word of God can bring death. With his word, with the sword of his mouth, um, judgment comes as it is prophesied, as it has been written. And then the Bible gives not only a word picture of Christ, um, but a picture expressed to him by the titles that are ascribed. There's a proclamation of Christ in the names and titles that John ascribed to him in his record. The Bible says he is called faithful and true. I've said this over and over. He's called faithful and true because he is the yes and amen of God. The Bible says that all the promises of God in Christ are yes and in him amen. That means whatever God has promised this creation he will accomplish through the Lord Jesus Christ and that that includes not only those promises that God made for mercy but also the promises that God made for wrath and for justice and for judgment to reign upon the earth all the promises of God are wrapped up in who Jesus is and on what Jesus has done for us and on what Jesus will do uh, in these last few chapters of Revelation the Bible says that he is the word of God John called him that in John chapter 1 Uh, And verse 1 also, that word is logos, which means the physical expression of the Godhead. It literally means that Jesus is the very breath of God himself. And when he speaks, he speaks with all the authority of the Godhead. All of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit was manifested in Jesus in bodily form. He also called him the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That means he has absolute authority. That means there is no power uh, above his. There is no power beyond his. He is the absolute ruler of all. We're going to see this in a few minutes. But I want you to know that Satan is not Jesus's um, equal or uh, co-equal evil. He is not even comparable to the power of Christ. There is no entity in heaven or in earth. There is no entity that ever has been or ever will be that will com- be comparable to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is above and beyond every entity. He is King of all kings and Lord of all lords. John also said of him that he has a name. Um, written that no man knew but he himself, an unknown name, an unspeakable name. And here's what I believe that means, that you cannot, with words, describe the greatness of our God and of our Savior, Jesus Christ. 
I remember when Moses had that encounter and he asked the Lord, he said, who do I tell them sent me? And God said, just tell him I am. Just tell them I am. Since you, I want you to know this morning that whatever you need, God says, I am. Whatever you truly need, God says, I am. Whatever your heart truly desires inside the scope of his will and his purpose and his plan for your life, God says, I am. That unknown name, that unspeakable name, that name that none of us can fathom, it defies human description and human understanding, um, the great I am. And then we see the purpose of Christ. John described for us why the heavens open and what Jesus is about to do. In righteousness he doth judge and make war. That's what Jesus is coming to do. In righteousness. And I think, I think he, there's a reason why John qualified it with that word. There have been a lot of unjust wars. There's been a lot of injustice in the world done by nations in the name of justice. Um, there have been a lot that's happened on the earth as far as the government of, of men has concerned that has been unjust. There, there, it has been unjust in war. We've taken, we've plundered. But, but, but John prefaced what Jesus is coming to do, that in righteousness, in perfect righteousness, he is coming to judge and to make war. Um, you contrast that with his first coming. He come to offer grace and to make peace. John said his purpose was not only to judge and make war, but to smite and rule the nations. Um, Jesus said um, that he would make his enemies, uh, that he would make his enemies his footstool. The, 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 that he would crush and oppose any and all who have opposed him. John also said that he had come to tread the winepress of God's wrath. The age of grace ends. There is, there is a time when grace and mercy ends. Um, Jesus compared his second coming to, Mo, to, to Noah on several occasions. Um, some of the other writers of the New Testament did as well. But one thing that we often miss in Noah's boat building and his ark building is that he spent 120 years, and the Bible says that he was a preacher of righteousness. He spent 120 years building the ark. He, people had opportunity to respond. People had opportunity to believe his word. People had opportunity to, get to, to assist him in his ark building. And the Bible makes it very clear that nobody did it outside of his own family. Seven days before it ever rained a drop. Seven days before thunder ever rolled across the heavens and light never struck the earth. Seven days before the fountains of the deep were ever broken up. The Bible says God told Noah and his family to get in the ark. He got in the ark. Can you imagine what happened for the next seven days? They laughed him to scorn. The man has gotten a boat full of animals and sealed the ark. Now listen, if you're laughing at Noah's ark story, if you think that's a... That, 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 that's a made-up fairy tale. Most of the ancient civilizations have, have given a story similar to Noah's Ark. The, the biblical account, I believe, is the accurate account. But listen to me. You, you, have you ever flown over this nation in an airplane? This world has been smitten with a global flood. It wasn't isolated. It was worldwide. I believe it, that this whole earth was submersed under the wrath of God. You can look and see up on the highest peaks of the mountains where water has run off and created these huge trenches. It ain't millions of years old. It's 6,000 years old. It is the judgment of God. You see rocks sitting on top of big rocks sitting. April and them seen them hiking. 
who did that. That's the fountains of the great deep breaking up and rocks being moved out of their places and, and the continents literally splitting apart under the judgment of God. Seven days Noah stayed in that ark with no rain. The seventh day the flood came. You don't believe there were some people beating on the door? You don't think there were some folks who were changing their mind very quickly about the judgment of God? But the Bible says that the door had been shut and God shut the door. Noah couldn't have opened it if he wanted to. And I'm telling you, there's coming a day. I want you to hear me. There's coming a day that door's going to be shut. And I want you to know that door can be shut in your life today. The Bible says that you don't come to him unless he calls you. And he won't always call. The Bible says his spirit will not always strive with men. Um, he, he'll strive. He wants to, he, he's long-suffering and patient, not willing that any should perish. But God also knows when you've crossed that, unvi- that invisible line and when there's no hope for you and when you won't receive and the door's shut for you. There's no conviction. The, the reprobate mind means a man has no conscience of his own sin. He has no conscience of his rebellion against God anymore. Jesus comes to tread the wine press of God's wrath because the age of grace has now ended and the day of destruction has come. And then John tells us there about who comes with him, the people of Christ. Verse 14, the armies that are in heaven followed him. The fact that he said that they are clothed in fine linen, white and clean, everywhere in the book of Revelation, that, that, that imagery is given. It's speaking of redeemed men, men who have been purchased by his blood, who have washed their sins in his blood and have been given the righteousness of Christ. So everything in the scripture points to me that when Jesus comes back at his second coming, the armies of heaven, the redeemed saints who are already with Jesus are coming with him. Um, and will follow him into battle, but the battle is the Lord's. Can I just read you what Jesus said about this day? In Matthew chapter 24, beginning in verse 27, Jesus said, For as the lightning cometh out of the east and shineth even into the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Just let me pause right there. Christy was telling me some of you might have been there at the football game. Was it in Atco or Berrien? Atco? Um... The other night in a football game just before halftime, she said nobody saw the lightning or heard the thunder. Just all of a sudden, the stadium that was lit up went from, went from all lit up to pitch black. And, and all of a sudden, it was just chaos. People trying to get out of the bleachers, people trying to find out what happened. And then a few minutes after that, the thunder rolled. When Jesus described his second coming, he says it's going to be like the lightning coming out of the east. You don't have room to prepare. You're not going to have room to get right. The age of grace has come to an end. It just looked like the Antichrist and the false prophet are in power. They're not. It just looked like you're better off to give them heed. And I'm digging into the book of Revelation a little bit. I understand, but the Bible says in, in the tribulation, you won't be able to buy or sell unless you take the mark of the beast. I believe that's literal. I believe there's going to be something that prevents you from buying and selling, from being able to eat. You think a man starving to death ain't going to do whatever it takes to eat. And he's going to believe at that time that this man, miracles are coming out of his hands. The Bible, the Bible says the false prophet gives, gives the ability of, the Antichrist is going to fake a resurrection. I don't believe he's truly resurrected, but he's going to fake a resurrection. The world's going to be deceived. They're already deceived. You understand, delusion is already thick in this world. 
There are people who can't see the truth when it's smacking them in the face every day because they don't want to. Why? Because their deeds are wicked. That's what 2 Thessalonians says. Why don't men receive the love of the truth? That why do they suppress the truth? They suppress it in unrighteousness. They suppress it in wickedness. Why? Because it's just like it was when, when, when Satan tempted uh, Eve and Adam in the garden. They want to be their own God. They want to be the own, their own Lord. They want to do life on their own terms. Listen, we are his creation. He created us for his good pleasure. He created us and we owe him everything that we are. And one day, just like that. The age of grace ends. The day of vengeance begins. The people of Christ, the armies in heaven follow him. Jesus says, wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, shall the sun be darkened and the moon shall not give her light and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heaven shall be shaken. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. There's that glorious appearing. And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect. Those are the saved. Those are the blood-bought. From the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Let me, let me read you what Jude said, the half-brother of Jesus. Jude 14 verse and verse 15 says, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly speeches which they have ungodly committed, and of all their hard speeches, which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. When you read those words, you can almost hear Jude just spitting those words out. What is, what is Jude angry about? He's angry that the world has rejected the truth of God. When Jesus comes back, he's going to be angry at the world that has rejected the truth that could have set them free. And then the last thing that he shows us is the power of Christ. I know that there's not much here, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but Revelation chapter 19 is the battle of Armageddon. And actually the battle of Armageddon is a series of battles. Daniel of the beast, they're the ones who are standing for Christ. They're the ones proclaiming truth, and they'll be the most hated people during the tribulation that are on the face of the earth. But all that culminates that when those demonic spirits are released uh, and the river Euphrates dries up, when, when those demonic spirits bring about all that delusion upon the earth, the people of this world are going to gather themselves together against Christ and against those who have, who have pledged their allegiance to him. It's a series of battles, and Daniel lays it out and tells us exactly how it's going to take place. But in the battle of Armageddon, this is all of the wicked world against Christ and his people. But the power of Christ is very clear in this. That he has power over the Antichrist and the false prophet. The two men who ruled the earth with satanic power and satanic deception. Jesus, it just says with the word of his mouth, he declared they'd be bound and cast into the lake of fire. So on the day of the Lord, 
All the power that was wrapped up in the Antichrist. All the power that was wrapped up in the, in the false prophet. All, they're literally the incarnation uh, of, of satanic power. They are, they, are, they are the sun and the spirit. The, the, the fake sun and the spirit um, during the tribulation who deceived the whole world. Um, and the Bible says when Jesus comes with the sword of his mouth, he has power over the Antichrist and the false prophet. They're defeated and become the first two inhabitants of the lake of fire. Um, there's nobody in the lake of fire today. There's a place where they're being tormented. There's a place of holding. I don't have time to get in great detail on that. And there's nobody in the lake of fire today. Um, the, but the false prophet and the Antichrist will be the first two inhabitants of the lake of fire. He also has power over the remnant of, of all the wicked. And, and I believe this, and you've heard me say it before, when, when that day is done, there will not be one wicked, unbelieving person left alive on the planet. Not one. Now this is a lesson for another day, but I believe all those that have been saved during the tribulation, specifically the Jewish nation that came to trust Christ, um, they'll survive that day because they are the remnant of God's people on the earth that he'll use during the millennial kingdom. But not one unbelieving man, woman, boy, or girl will be left standing on that day. They may be armed to the teeth. They may come against Jesus and the saints with everything that they've got, but with the sword of his mouth, he'll execute power and judgment over them. I want to read to you a, a descriptive passage from Isaiah chapter 63, and then we're going to close. Isaiah 63, verse 1. Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I that, speaketh, I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel? And thy garments like him that treadeth in the winepress. Why do you have blood on you? Why, why does it look like you've been treading out a winepress? And then here's Jesus' answer. I have trodden the winepress alone. And of the people there was none with me. For I will tread them in mine anger and trample them in my fury. And their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments. And I will stain all my raiment. For the day of vengeance is in mine heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. And I looked, and there was none to help, and I wondered that there was none to uphold. Therefore mine own arm brought salvation to me, and my fury it upheld me. And I will tread down the people in mine anger, and make them drunk in my fury, and I will bring down their strength to the earth. That's not a description of Jesus that our world is comfortable with today. But that's the Jesus of the Bible. You hear what I'm saying to you? We, we, we have become accustomed with a Jesus who was and a Jesus who is. But there is a Jesus that is coming. That's coming as that warrior. That's, he's coming as that lion. He's coming as the one that treads the winepress of the wrath of God upon a wicked and unbelieving world. Jesus' second coming, I'm going to say this again and give you a little bit of, of, of meat to go with it. Jesus' second coming is the most prophesied, 
proclaimed and promised event in the entirety of God's word. In the Old Testament, there are 1,845 references to the second coming of Christ. There are 17 books in the Old Testament that give precedence, prominence to the day of the Lord. I would challenge you to go read Zechariah. Now, Zechariah reads a little different because Zechariah is written to the people of Israel who will be saved during the tribulation. And he says, in that day, in that day, in that day. And although there are some references to Christ's judgment in that day, there are also many references to what Christ is going to do for Jerusalem, for Israel, because he prophesied those things in his word. Romans chapter 11 alludes to that. Uh, in the New Testament, there are 260 chapters in the New Testament. There are 318 verses that reference the second coming. One out of every 30 verses references the second coming. 23 out of 27 books reference the second coming. For every one prophecy in God's word that you find for Christ's first coming, there are eight which promise his second coming. I said all that to say this, Jesus is coming back. The last thing he said to his apostles when he, when he left this world, the angels, in fact, said it. Why are you standing here gazing into the heavens? Just as you have seen him go, he's going to come back in like manner. You better go get busy doing what he's called you to do. You go back to Jerusalem and wait until you get power. And when you get that power, be his witnesses. When you, when you think about the second coming, if you are a believer, if you are a child of God, it ought to be the most anticipated event in your life. Because that's when everything gets set straight. That's when everything gets made right. That's the climax of our salvation. That's the consummation of our marriage to Christ. That's the beginning of our eternal hope and our eternal future. Um, it, it ought to be the most anticipated because it most certainly will be the most celebrated. If you're a child of God, the second coming, you have nothing to fear. You're in the ark. You're safe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing's going to harm you in that day. Um, he didn't come, he, he, in fact, he's going to deliver us from that day. We ride behind him. In his judgment. We're not in front of him. We're, we're, we're behind him in his victory uh, over sin. Um, if you are not a believer. If, if you're living in, in, in willful sin and unbelief. The second coming of the Lord ought to be the most dreaded event. That you could ever imagine. Because I promise you this. It will be the most terrifying. Jesus is coming again. The Bible says it over and over and over and over again. You know what, 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 was, what, what was said of his first coming? Not one thing failed. The scripture told us um, when, he would be born, when he would ride into Jerusalem on that donkey to the day, it told us that, that he would be born in Bethlehem. Um, it told us that he would have to make a flight into Egypt as a child because of the wrath of, of Herod. Um, all, every detail of Christ's first coming, the cross and the resurrection were laid out in, in absolutely perfect detail in Isaiah chapter 53. Every aspect of his first coming happened just exactly like God said it would in the Old Testament. The same thing is going to be true of the second coming. Do you believe that?
And if you believe that, can you prove it by the way that you're living your life every day with that truth in mind? I think he's coming first for his church to rapture us, to rescue us from a world that is ripe for his wrath, but then he's coming to judge the world, to wipe the wicked and unbelieving from it, and to rule and to reign forever. I'm going to read just a few more verses here, and I'm going to ask our, in fact, the musicians can come on and come. That will make me be to the point. Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. I'm going to skip through this parable a little bit and read some pertinent verses to you. Actually, I don't believe it's a parable. There is a parable of talents that precedes this. But verse 31 says, When the Son of Man shall come in His glory, and all the holy angels with Him, then shall He set upon the throne of His glory, and before Him shall be gathered all nations, and He shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And He shall set... He shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That's good news. And he told us in those verses that follow that those people's works testified of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you get to verse 41, and it says this, Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. We'll read about that in chapter 20. And then you get to verse 46, and it says this, And these, that's those on the left hand, shall go away into everlasting punishment but the righteous unto life eternal. I'm not going to sing this hymn to you, but I do want to read the three verses to it. There's a great day coming, a great day coming. There's a great day coming by and by when the saints and the sinners shall be parted right and left. Are you ready for that day to come? There's a bright day coming, a bright day coming. There's a bright day coming by and by, but its brightness shall only come to them that love the Lord. Are you ready for that day to come? There's a sad day coming, a sad day coming. There's a sad day coming by and by. When the sinner shall hear his doom, depart, I know ye not. Are you ready for that day to come? Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready for the judgment day? Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready for the judgment day? Let's stand together. Father, I pray you'd add your blessing to this reading of your word, to this preaching of your word. Jesus, help us to remember not just who you were, not who, just who you are, but help us this morning to be very aware of the fact that one day you're coming back again and when you come back again it will be with judgment and justice with fury and with wrath and Lord I pray that every person under the sound of my voice has heard the voice of the Spirit this morning to either bring confirmation of their salvation or, or brought the conviction that leads them to a place of repentance 
Um, have your will in your way, God. I pray that if there's one here in this place that's lost, not prepared for that day, that today would be their day of salvation. Add your blessing to the reading and the preaching of your word. And we'll praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.